Chapter Eight, Part One of *The Lost Girl* by D. H. Lawrence. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chicho. Madame did not pick up her spirits after her cold. For two days she lay in bed, attended by Mrs. Rollings and Alvina and the young men, but she was most careful never to give any room for scandal. The young men might not approach her save in the presence of some third party and then it was strictly a visit of ceremony or business. "'Oh, your wood-house, how glad I shall be when I have left it,' she said to Alvina. "'I feel it is unlucky for me.' "'Do you?' said Alvina. "'But if you'd had this bad cold in some places, you might have been much worse, don't you think?' "'Oh, my dear,' cried Madame, "'do you think I could confuse you in my dislike of this wood-house?' "'Oh, no, you are not Woodhouse. "'On the contrary, I think it is unkind for you also, this place. "'You look also, uh, what shall I say, thin, not very happy.' "'It was a note of interrogation. "'I'm sure I dislike Woodhouse much more than you can,' replied Alvina. "'I am sure. "'Yes, I am sure. "'I see it.' "'Why don't you go away? Why don't you marry?' "'Nobody wants to marry me,' said Alvina. Madame looked at her searchingly, with shrewd black eyes under her arched eyebrows. "'How?' she exclaimed. "'How don't they? You are not bad-looking, only a, a little too thin, too haggard.' She watched Alvina. Alvina laughed uncomfortably. "'Is there nobody?' persisted Madame. "'Not now,' said Alvina. "'Absolutely nobody.' She looked with a confused laugh into Madame's strict black eyes. "'You see, I didn't care for the Woodhouse young men either. I couldn't.' Madame nodded slowly up and down. A secret satisfaction came over her pallid, waxy countenance, in which her black eyes were like twin swift, extraneous creatures oddly like two bright little dark animals in the snow. "'Sure,' she said, sapient. "'Sure. How could you? But there are other men besides these here.' She waved her hand to the window. "'I don't meet them, do I?' said Alvina. "'No, not often. But sometimes. Sometimes.' There was a silence between the two women, very pregnant. "'English women,' said Madame, "'are so practical. "'Why are they?' "'I suppose they can't help it,' said Alvina. "'But they're not half so practical and clever as you, Madame.' "'Oh, la, la! I am practical differently. "'I am practical impractically,' she stumbled over the words. "'But you're soon now, in Jude the Obscure. "'Is it not an interesting book?' And is she not always too practically practical? If she had been impractically practical, she could have been quite happy. Do you know what I mean? No, uh, but she is ridiculous, Sue. So Anna Karenina, ridiculous both, don't you think? Why? said Alvina. Why did they both make everybody unhappy when they had the man they wanted, and enough money? I think they are both so silly. If they had been beaten, they would have lost all their practical ideas and troubles, merely forgot them, and been happy enough. I am a woman who says it. 
such ideas they have are not tragical no not at all they are nonsense you see nonsense that is all nonsense sue and anna they are nonsensical that is all no tragedy whatsoever nonsense i am a woman i know men also and i know nonsense when i see it english women are all nonsense the worst women in the world for nonsense well i am english said alvina yes my dear you are english but you are not necessarily so nonsensical why are you at all nonsensical laughed alvina but i don't know what you call my nonsense ah said madame wearily they never understand but i like you my dear i am an old woman younger than i said alvina younger than you because i am practical from the heart and not only from the head you are not practical from the heart and yet you have a heart but all english women have good hearts protested alvina no no objected madame they are all very kind and very practical with their kindness but they have no heart in all their kindness it is all head all head the kindness of the head i can't agree with you said alvina no no i don't expect it but i don't mind you are very kind to me and i thank you but it is from the head you see and so i thank you from the head from the heart no madame plucked her white fingers together and laid them on her breast with a gesture of repudiation her black eyes stared spitefully but madame said alvina nettled i should never be half such a good business-woman as you isn't that from the head ha of course of course you wouldn't be a good business-woman because you are kind from the head i she tapped her forehead and shook her head i am not kind from the head from the head i am business-woman good business-woman of course i am a good business-woman of course but here she changed her expression widened her eyes and laid her hand on her breast when the heart speaks then i listen with the art i do not listen with the head the art hears the heart the head that is another thing but you have blue eyes you cannot understand only dark eyes she paused and mused and what about yellow eyes asked alvina laughing madame darted a look at her her lips curling with a very faint fine smile of derision yet for the first time her black eyes dilated and became warm yellow eyes like chicho's she said with her great watchful eyes and her smiling subtle mouth they are the darkest of all and she shook her head roguishly are they said alvina confusedly feeling a blush burning up her throat into her face ah ha laughed madame ha ha i am an old woman you see my heart is old enough to be kind and my head is old enough to be clever my heart is kind to few people very few especially in this england my young men know that but perhaps to you it is kind thank you said alvina there from the head thank you it is not well done you see you see but alvina ran away in confusion she felt madame was having her on a string 
Mr. May enjoyed himself hugely, playing Kishwagin. When Madame came downstairs, Louis, who was a good satirical mimic, imitated him. Alvina happened to come into their sitting-room in the midst of their bursts of laughter. They all stopped and looked at her cautiously. Continue, continue, said Madame to Louis, and to Alvina, sit down, my dear, and see what a good actor we have in our Louis. Louis glanced round, laid his head a little on one side, and drew in his chin, with Mr. May's smirk exactly, and wagging his tail slightly, he commenced to play the false Kishwagin. He sidled and bridled and ejaculated with raised hands, and in the dumb show the tall Frenchman made such a ludicrous caricature of Mr. Houghton's manager that Madame wept again with laughter, whilst Max leaned back against the wall and giggled continuously, like some pot involuntarily boiling. Geoffrey spread his shut fists across the table and shouted with laughter. Chicho threw back his head and showed all his teeth in a loud laugh of delighted derision. Alvina laughed also, but she flushed. There was a certain biting, annihilating quality in Louis's derision of the absentee. And the others enjoyed it so much. At moments Alvina caught her lip between her teeth. It was so screamingly funny and so annihilating. She laughed in spite of herself. In spite of herself she was shaken into a convulsion of laughter. Louis was masterful. He mastered her psyche. She laughed till her head lay helpless on the chair. She could not move. Helpless, inert, she lay in her orgasm of laughter. The end of Mr. May. Yet she was hurt. And then Madame wiped her own shrewd black eyes and nodded slow approval. Suddenly Louis started and held up a warning finger. They all at once covered their smiles and pulled themselves together. Only Alvina lay silently laughing. "'Oh, good morning, Mrs. Rawlings,' they heard Mr. May's voice. "'Your company is lively. Is Miss Houghton here? May I go through?' They heard his quick little step and his quick little tap. "'Come in,' called Madame. The Natchiquitawaras all sat with straight faces. Only poor Alvina lay back in her chair in a new, weak convulsion. Mr. May glanced quickly round and advanced to Madame. "'Oh, good morning, Madame. So glad to see you downstairs,' he said, taking her hand and bowing ceremoniously. "'Excuse my intruding on your mirth,' <laughs> he looked archly round. Alvina was still incompetent. She lay leaning sideways in her chair, and could not even speak to him. "'It was evidently a good joke,' he said. "'May I hear it, too?' "'Oh,' said Madame, drawling, "'it was no joke. It was only Louis making a fool of himself, doing a turn.' "'Must have been a good one,' said Mr. May. "'Can't we put it on?' "'No,' drawled Madame. It was nothing, just a nonsensical mood of the moment. Won't you sit down? You would like a little whisky, yes? Max poured out whisky and water for Mr. May. Alvina sat with her face averted, quiet, but unable to speak to Mr. May. Max and Louis had become polite. Geoffrey stared, with his big, dark blue eyes, stolidly at the newcomer. Chicho leaned with his arms on his knees, looking sideways under his long lashes at the inert Alvina. 
"'Well,' said Madame, "'and are you satisfied with your houses?' "'Oh, yes,' said Mr. May, "'quite. The two nights have been excellent, excellent.' "'Ah, I am glad. And Miss Houghton tells me I should not dance to-morrow. It is too soon.' "'Miss Houghton knows,' said Mr. May, archly. "'Of course,' said Madame, "'I must do as she tells me.' "'Why, yes, since it is for your good, and not hers.' "'Of course, uh, of course, it is very kind of her.' "'Miss Houghton is most kind to every one,' said Mr. May. "'I am sure,' said Madame, "'and I am very glad you have been such a good Kishwengan. "'That is very nice also.' "'Yes,' replied Mr. May. "'I begin to wonder if I have uh, mistaken my vocation.' I should have been on the boards instead of behind them. No doubt, said Madame, but it is a little late. The eyes of the foreigners watching him flattered Mr. May. I am afraid it is, he said. Yes, popular taste is a mysterious thing. How do you feel now? Do you feel they appreciate your work as much as they did? Madame watched him with her black eyes. No, she replied, they don't. The pictures are driving us away. Perhaps we shall last for uh, ten years more, and after that we are finished. You think so? said Mr. May, looking serious. I am sure, she said, nodding sagely. But why is it? said Mr. May, angry and petulant. Why is it? I don't know. I don't know. The pictures are cheap, and they are easy, and they cost the audience nothing. No feeling of the art, no appreciation of the spirit, cost them nothing of these. And so they like them, and they don't like us, because they must feel the things we do from the art, and appreciate them from the spirit. There! And they don't want to appreciate and to feel? said Mr. May. No, they don't want. They want it all through the eye, and finished. So! just curiosity impertinent curiosity that's all in all countries the same and so in ten years time no more kishwegan at all no then what future have you said mr may gloomily i may be dead who knows if not i shall have my little apartment in lausanne or bellizona and i shall be a bourgeois once more and the good Catholic which I am. Which I am also, said Mr. May. So, are you? An American Catholic? Well, English, Irish, American. So. Mr. May never felt more gloomy in his life than he did that day. Where, finally, was he to rest his troubled head? There was not all peace in the Natchaki Tawara group, either. For Thursday there was to be a change of programme. Kishwagin's wedding, with the white prisoner, B.F. said, was to take the place of the previous scene. Max, of course, was the director of the rehearsal. Madame would not come near the theatre when she herself was not to be acting. Though very quiet and unobtrusive as a rule, Max could suddenly assume an air of hauteur and overbearing, which was really very annoying. Geoffrey always fumed under it but Chicho it put into unholy, ungovernable tempers. For Max suddenly would reveal his contempt of the Italian, as he called Chicho, using the cockney word. Pah! 
Quelle tête de veau, said Max, suddenly contemptuous and angry, because Chicho, who really was slow at taking in the things said to him, had once more failed to understand. Comment? queried Chicho, in his slow, derisive way. Comment? sneered Max in echo. What? What? Why, what did I say? Calf's head, I said. Pig's head, if that seems more suitable to you. To whom? To me or to you? said Chicho, sidling up. To you, lout of an Italian. Max's colour was up. He held himself erect. His brown hair seemed to rise erect from his forehead. His blue eyes glared, fierce. That is to say, to me, from an uncivilised German pig. Ah? Ah? All this in French. Alvina, as she sat at the piano, saw Max tall and blanched with anger. Chicho, with his neck stuck out, oblivious and convulsed with rage, stretching his neck at Max. All were in ordinary dress, but without coats, acting in their shirt-sleeves. Chicho was clutching a property-knife. "'Now, none of that! None of that!' said Mr. May, peremptory. But Chicho, stretching forward, taut and immobile with rage, was quite unconscious. His hand was fast on his stage-knife. "'A dirty Italian,' said Max in English, turning to Mr. May. "'They understand nothing.' But the last word was smothered in Chicho's spring and stab. Max half started on to his guard, received the blow on his collarbone near the pommel of the shoulder, reeled round on top of Mr. May, whilst Chicho sprang like a cat down from the stage and bounded across the theatre and out of the door, leaving the knife rattling on the boards behind him. Max recovered and sprang like a demon, white with rage, straight out into the theatre after him. "'Stop! Stop!' cried Mr. May. "'Halt! Max! 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 Attends!' cried Louis and Geoffrey, as Louis sprang down after his friend. Thud went the boards again with the spring of a man. Alvina, who had been seated waiting at the piano below, started up and overturned her chair as Chicho rushed past her. Now Max, white, with set blue eyes, was upon her. "'Don't!' she cried, lifting her hand to stop his progress. He saw her, swerved and hesitated, turned to leap over the seats and avoid her, when Louis caught him and flung his arms round him. "'Max, attends, ami. Laisse-le partir. Max, tu sais que je t'aime. Tu le sais, ami. Tu le sais. Laisse-le partir.' Max and Louis wrestled together in the gangway, Max looking down with hate on his friend. But Louis was determined also. He wrestled as fiercely as Max, and at last the latter began to yield. He was panting and beside himself. Louis still held him by the hand and the arm. "'Let him go, brother. He isn't worth it. What does he understand, Max? Dear brother, what does he understand? These fellows from the South, they are half-children, half-animal. They don't know what they are doing. Has he hurt you, dear friend? Has he hurt you? It was a dummy knife, but it was a heavy blow, the dog of an Italian. Let us see.' So gradually Max was brought to stand still. From under the edge of his waistcoat, on the shoulder, the blood was already staining the shirt. "'Are you cut, brother?' "'Brother,' said Louis, "'let us see.' Max now moved his arm with pain. They took off his waistcoat and pushed back his shirt. 
a nasty, blackening wound, with the skin broken. "'If the bone isn't broken,' said Louis, anxiously, "'if the bone isn't broken, lift thy arm, frère, lift. It hurts you so. No, no, it is not broken. No, the bone is not broken.' "'There is no bone broken, I know,' said Max. "'The animal. He hasn't done that, at least.' "'Where do you imagine he's gone?' asked Mr. May. The foreigners shrugged their shoulders, and paid no heed. There was no more rehearsal. "'We had best go home and speak to Madame,' said Mr. May, who was very frightened for his evening performance. They locked up the endeavour. Alvina was thinking of Chicho. He was gone in his shirt-sleeves. She had taken his jacket and hat from the dressing-room at the back, and carried them under her raincoat, which she had on her arm. Madame was in a state of perturbation. She had heard someone come in at the back and go upstairs, and go out again. Mrs. Rowlings had told her it was the Italian, who had come in his shirt-sleeves and gone out in his black coat and black hat, taking his bicycle without saying a word. Poor Madame! She was struggling into her shoes, she had her hat on, when the others arrived. "'What is it?' she cried. She heard a hurried explanation from Louis. "'Ah, the animal! The animal! He wasn't worth all my pains!' cried poor Madame, sitting with one shoe off and one shoe on. "'Why, Max, why didst thou not remain man enough to control the, that insulting mountain temper of thine? Have I not said, and said, and said, that in the Nachiquito hour there was but one nation, the Red Indian?' but one tribe the tribe of kishwe and now thou hast called him a dirty italian or a dog of an italian and he has behaved like an animal too much too much of an animal too little esprit but thou max art almost as bad thy temper is a devil's which may be is worse than an animal's ah this woodhouse a curse is on it i know it is would we were away from it Will the week never pass? We shall have to find Chicho. Without him the company is ruined. Until I get a substitute. I must get a substitute. And how? And where? In this country. Tell me that. I am tired of Nachakitoara. There is no true tribe of Kishwe. No, never. I have had enough of Nachakitoara. Let us break up. Let us part. May brave. Let us say adieu here in this funest wood-house. Oh, madame, dear madame, said Louis, let us hope, let us swear a closer fidelity, dear madame, our Kishwegen. Let us never part. Max, thou dost not want to part, brother, well-loved. Thou dost not want to part, brother, whom I love. And thou, Geoffrey, thou. Madame burst into tears. Louis wept too. Even Max turned aside his face, with tears. Alvina stole out of the room, followed by Mr. May. In a while Madame came out to them. "'Oh,' she said, "'you have not gone away. We are wondering which way Chicho will have gone, on to Narborough or to Marche. Geoffrey will go on his bicycle to find him. But shall it be to Narborough or to Marche?' "'Ask the policeman in the market-place,' said Alvina. "'He's sure to have noticed him.' because Chicho's yellow bicycle is so uncommon. Mr. May tripped out on this errand, while the others discussed among themselves where Chicho might be. Mr. May returned, and said that Chicho had ridden off down the Narborough road. 
It was raining slightly. "'Ah!' said Madame. "'And now how to find him in that great town?' "'Surely he will want to speak to Geoffrey before he goes,' said Louis. "'They were always good friends.' They all looked at Geoffrey. He shrugged his broad shoulders. "'Always good friends,' he said. "'Yes. He will perhaps wait for me at his cousin's in Battersea. In Narborough I don't know.' "'How much money had he?' asked Mr. May. Madame spread her hands and lifted her shoulders. "'Who knows?' she said. "'These Italians,' said Louis, turning to Mr. May, "'they have always money. In another country they will not spend one sou if they can help. They are like this,' and he made the Neapolitan gesture, drawing in the air with his fingers. "'But would he abandon you all without a word?' cried Mr. May. "'Yes, yes,' said Madame, with a sort of stoic pathos. "'He would. He alone would do such a thing. But he would do it.' "'And what point would he make for?' "'What point? You mean where would he go? "'To Battersea, no doubt, to his cousin, "'and then to Italy, if he thinks he has saved enough money "'to buy land or whatever it is.' "'And so good-bye to him,' said Mr. May, bitterly. "'Geoffrey ought to know,' said Madame, looking at Geoffrey. "'Geoffrey shrugged his shoulders and would not give his comrade away. "'No,' he said, "'I don't know.' He will leave a message at Battersea, I know, but I don't know if he will go to Italy. And you don't know where to find him in Narborough? asked Mr. May, sharply, very much on the spot. No, I don't. Perhaps at the station he will go by train to London. It was evident Geoffrey was not going to help Mr. May. Alors, said Madame, cutting through this futility, go thou to Narborough, Geoffrey, and see, and be back at the theatre for work. "'Go now, and if thou canst find him, bring him again to us. "'Tell him to come out of kindness to me. "'Tell him.' "'And she waved the young man away. "'He departed on his nine-mile ride through the rain to Narborough. "'They know,' said Madame, "'they know each other's places. "'It is a little more than a year since we came to Narborough, "'but they will remember.' "'Geoffrey rode swiftly as possible through the mud.' He did not care very much whether he found his friend or not. He liked the Italian, but he never looked on him as a permanency. He knew Ciccio was dissatisfied and wanted a change. He knew that Italy was pulling him away from the troupe, with which he had been associated now for three years or more. And the Swiss from Martigny knew that the Neapolitan would go, breaking all ties, one day suddenly back to Italy. It was so, and Geoffrey was philosophical about it. He rode into town, and the first thing he did was to seek out the music-hall artistes at their lodgings. He knew a good many of them. They gave him a welcome and a whisky, but none of them had seen Ciccio. They sent him off to other artistes, other lodging-houses. He went the round of associates, known and unknown, of lodgings strange and familiar, of third-rate possible public-houses. Then he went to the Italians down in the marsh. He knew these people always asked for one another. And then, hurrying, he dashed to the Midland station, and then to the Great Central station, asking the porters on the London departure platform if they had seen his pal, a man with a yellow bicycle and a black bicycle cape, all to no purpose. Geoffrey hurriedly lit his lamp and swung off in the dark back to Woodhouse. He was a powerfully built, imperturbable fellow. 
he pressed slowly uphill through the streets, then ran downhill into the darkness of the industrial country. He had continually to cross the new tram-lines, which were awkward, and he had occasionally to dodge the brilliantly illuminated tram-cars, which threaded their way across country through so much darkness. All the time it rained, and his back wheel slipped under him, in the mud and on the new tram-track. As he pressed in the long darkness that lay between Slater's Mill and Derby Houses, he saw a light ahead, another cyclist. He moved to his side of the road. The light approached very fast. It was a strong acetylene flare. He watched it, a flash and a splash, and he saw the humped back of what was probably Chicho going by at a great pace on the low racing machine. "'Hi, Chich! Chicho!' he yelled dropping off his own bicycle. "'Hi!' he heard the answering shout, unmistakably Italian, way down the darkness. He turned, saw the other cyclist had stopped. The flare swung round, and Chicho softly rode up. He dropped off beside Geoffrey. "'Toi!' said Chicho. "'Eh! Où vas-tu?' "'Eh!' ejaculated Chicho. Their conversation consisted a good deal in noises, variously ejaculated coming back asked geoffrey where have you been retorted chicho narborough looking for thee where have you buckled my front wheel at derby houses come off eh hey, yeah hurt nothing max is all right merde come on come back with me nay chicho shook his head madame's crying wants thee to come back Chicho shook his head. "'Come on, Cheech,' said Geoffrey. Chicho shook his head. "'Never,' said Geoffrey. "'Basta. Had enough,' said Chicho, with an invisible grimace. "'Come for a bit, and we'll clear together.' Chicho again shook his head. "'What is it, adieu?' Chicho did not speak. "'Don't go, comrade,' said Geoffrey. "'For,' said Chicho, slightly derisive, Eh, hey, allo, I'd like to come with thee. What? Where? Doesn't matter. Thou'rt going to Italy? Who knows? Seems so. I'd like to go back. Eh, hey, allo. Chicho half veered round. Wait for me a few days, said Geoffrey. Where? See you tomorrow in Narborough. Go to Mrs. Pym's, 6 Hampton Street. Gittiventi is there. Right, eh? I'll think about it. Eleven o'clock, eh? I'll think about it. Friends ever. Chicho, eh? Geoffrey held out his hand. Chicho slowly took it. The two men leaned to each other and kissed farewell on either cheek. Tomorrow, Chich. Au revoir, Gigi. Chicho dropped onto his bicycle and was gone in a breath. Geoffrey waited a moment for a tram which was rushing brilliantly up to him in the rain. Then he mounted and rode in the opposite direction. He went straight down to Lumley, and Madame had to remain on tenterhooks till ten o'clock. She heard the news and said, "'Tomorrow I go to fetch him,' and with this she went to bed. In the morning she was up betimes, sending a note to Alvina. Alvina appeared at nine o'clock. "'You will come with me?' said Madame. Come, together we will go to Narborough and bring back the naughty Chicho. Come with me, because I haven't all my strength. Yes, you will? 
Good, good. Let us tell the young men, and we will go now, on the tram-car. But I'm not properly dressed, said Alvina. Who will see, said Madame. Come, let us go. They told Geoffrey they would meet him at the corner of Hamden Street at five minutes to eleven. You see, said Madame to Alvina, they are very funny, these young men, particularly Italians. You must never let them think you have caught them. Perhaps he will not let us see him, who knows? Perhaps he will go off to Italy all the same. They sat in the bumping tram-car, a long and wearying journey, and then they tramped the dreary, hideous streets of the manufacturing town. At the corner of the street they waited for Geoffrey, who rode up muddily on his bicycle. "'Ask Chicho to come out to us, and we will go and drink coffee at the Geisha restaurant, or tea or something,' said Madame. Again the two women waited wearily at the street-end. At last Geoffrey returned, shaking his head. "'He won't come?' cried Madame. "'No. He says he is going back to Italy.' "'To London. It is the same. You can never trust them. Is he quite obstinate?' Geoffrey lifted his shoulders. Madame could see the beginnings of defection in him, too, and she was tired and dispirited. "'We shall have to finish the Nachakitoara, that is all,' she said fretfully. Geoffrey watched her stolidly, impassively. "'Dost thou want to go with him?' she asked suddenly. Geoffrey smiled sheepishly, and his colour deepened, but he did not speak. "'Go, then,' she said. "'Go, then. Go with him.' but for the sake of my honour finish this week at Woodhouse. Can I make Miss Houghton's father lose these two nights? Where is your shame? Finish this week, and then go. Go! But finish this week. Tell Francesco that. I have finished with him, but let him finish this engagement. Don't put me to shame. Don't destroy my honour, and the honour of the Nachiquitoara. Tell him that. End of chapter 8, part 1. Read by Tony Foster.